Hello, Ars Technica listeners. This is the latest serialization of an episode of the After On podcast here at Ars. We're splitting this one into three segments starting today, and I'll be talking to Chris Anderson, who is the editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine for 12 years. Chris then founded and now runs 3D Robotics, a genuinely historic innovator in the world of drones. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about Chris as a founder, but I'd first like to shine a spotlight on him as a thinker, because he is one of my favorite thinkers in an industry that has no shortage of them. For example, most listeners are probably familiar with the term the long tail. This refers to the extraordinarily long and diverse lists of media titles, products, and more that exist beyond smash hits like Spider-Man or the iPhone. The digital era makes the long tail of offerings far more accessible than it ever has been before. Just think of the list of books available at Amazon versus any library, or the selection of songs on Spotify versus the dearly departed music stores of yesteryear, or all the information sources gathered up by Google. The long tail has immense societal, economic, and cultural ramifications, and it's just one of many important and broadly known concepts that our guest Chris Anderson conceived of, fleshed out, and named. Now, if you add to that the boundless influence he had on the culture and agenda of the tech world running Wired Magazine for over a dozen years, you have a major thinker indeed. That's like being the Minister of Culture for Silicon Valley. And hanging out with Chris is always a delight and an education for me. And just the tone of my voice at many points in this interview will tell you how much fun I have talking to him. So, I hope you enjoy hearing this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Thank you, Chris, so much for uh, inviting me to your lovely Berkeley offices uh, for the second or third time I've been here. It, mm-hmm. it, it has a Wonka-like feeling to it with all the kind of cool drones and other sort of bleepy, flashy things around it. Yeah, less bleepy, flashy than our sort of maker era when we were yes. making lots of drones, but more bitty, cloudy Yeah, yeah, yeah. than it once was. And and before we get started, this is kind of a fun thing. As our listeners who don't know this are about to find out, despite being an intensely digital person, before becoming a tech entrepreneur, you had a long and storied history in media. And despite your incredible digital orientation, there's so many physical artifacts of your career. I mean, there are the three books, of course. There's over, what, 100 issues of Wired? Good God. Something like that. 12 years times 12 issues. Yeah. Over 144. A gross. Mm. And I realized coming over here that I have nothing actually physically signed by you. And, you know, given the obscene markups that can be found on eBay, I figured I should address that. So I just got some one of your, your many um, items of media, and I'm hoping you can uh, sign this for oh me. Oh, my God. This. Oh, uh, my God. So this is uh, – I have not actually held this artifact. Should we say what it is? Yes, absolutely. Tell people who have heard the reaction now. And for those of you who can't see it, which is all of you. Yes. What are we looking at okay, here? Okay. What we're, what we're looking at here is a um, – God, it's a real flashback. It's a record, a as in a vinyl record. A vinyl LP. Um, in a cardboard sleeve and yep. a plastic cover. And um, on the back of this record, to get to the point, is a one Christopher Anderson bass. 
um, with hair. With quite a bit of hair, almost pre-flock of seagulls, or maybe um, it's kind of a punk flock of seagulls. I think if I'd had more hair, it would have been more flock of seagulls. Yeah, but it's more punk. It's a much edgier look than flock of seagulls. And it's bleach blonde, um, which is probably responsible for my lack of hair today. Uh, (laughs) Uh, But more to the point, it is an album from a band called Egoslavia. Egoslavia. Uh, The story of that name is the story worth telling. Yeah, let's hear the story of Egoslavia. Okay, so what what you have here is my only um, album, and when I say mine, I mean not mine. It's my I'm you're in a band. There's four of you. I'm a bit player in a in an obscure band. You're one of four. That's not one, one of four. Um, I see copyright 1982. All right, yeah. And um, what's in, what's important about this album, which is it's all fun album, etc., is that it was the band Yugoslavia was not actually the original name of the band. This this is a little bit of a a little bit of a sadness in this story because this is the uh, the losing uh, the reward for losing a battle of the bands. Yep, is that we're called Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're actually called REM. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, and um, we were the toast of Washington D.C. Yeah, I'll, REM. I remember did quite well. I'll, I'll have you know. Yeah, That's yeah. Right. And uh, you know we were releasing our first album. Yep. Um, and our manager came to us and he said, you know, it's the weirdest thing. There's this other band called R.E.M., but don't worry. They're from Athens, Georgia. How good could they possibly be? <laughs> and, uh, but we thought as, you know, and they were releasing their first single. I think the first, maybe ours was the first EP or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we thought it'd be fun to have a battle of the R.E.M.s. And so our managers got them to, you know, they schlepped up to from Athens to Washington D.C. in the back of their van. And oh, we, so it was a home. You had home field. Advantage. We had home field advantage. Yeah. We were in our the nine thirty club, which was kind of a, oh, a, a cool spot. And still is in, in D.C. etc. And we flipped a coin to see who was going to go on first, mm-hmm. and, and we won. And we we did a set, our set, and we crushed it. And you know, everyone loved it because they always do. And, home um, field. Yeah. Yeah. And then we went to the bar to sort of toast our victory. And uh, then they came on, you know, the Hicks from the Sticks, and the first song was Radio Free Europe, mm. which was their not only their first single but it's actually a really good song yeah well it was chronic town i guess would have been the ep at that time probably yeah it's a probably, five song ep all i know yeah, yeah. is that it took about two chords before i realized that we had lost lost about, the name an, 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 well everything another another you know the crowd the name our our you know our pride etc yeah. another two chords before i realized we were kind of in the presence of something great uh-huh. and then i don't think the beers got finished and, and, and rem to their credit didn't even stick around long enough to rename us except for the bass player a guy named mike mills, mills. Is, yeah. a, is a sweet guy, and he um, and he stuck around. And um, I may be slightly mis- misremembering the story, but it's too good to check. Oh yeah, um, uh, that basically our our overconfidence and assuming we'd won the battle of the bands spurred his suggestion that we name ourselves Egoslavia. Egoslavia, which is a good name, actually. It's which is a, which is which is a good name. I think the umlauts over the a may be a little. Uh, a little wrong in all well, senses and then of the, the word. Well, a little slash through the O. I mean, it, it seems um, it seems a little like playful with all the. It was, know. and I think this is some sort of you know Russian constructivist um, image or something like that. Um, at, at any rate, um, this was the end of well, near the end of my rock and roll career. Yeah, and after uh, you know we were not REM, I went back to college and. There's something else in my life. We are now deep into your prehistory here. And if you don't mind, I'd like to, I always like to start with a little bit of background. We're obviously have, have veered into it. So you, you were born in the UK, then you moved over to the US right. as, as a, as a teen or a, as, as an eight year old, as an eight year old, as a preteen. You had, uh, you characterize it as a bit of a misspent youth. I uh, failed out of schools. Schools uh, up, plural. Schools up, but no, no criminal record. No criminal record. Yeah, good. Um, and, and schools. What were you in the East Coast? I, I, I technically didn't graduate from high school. 
when everyone else graduated, but I did eventually graduate from high school. And then I failed out of college. And then I played in punk rock bands and um, was a bicycle messenger for, until I was 25. Wow. So you're, you were living this, you know, musician bohemian life, I think in Washington, DC, correct? Mm -hmm. Is that where you had done most of your growing up? Yeah. And that was where you had failed out of the majority of the schools that you failed out of was in the DC area. All of them. Yeah. All of them actually. Okay. So you're in the DC area. No, I didn't fail out of all the schools in the DC area. <laughs> no, no, all the schools some, I fell, failed out of. The, yeah, that would take some doing. So, so you're in the DC area. You're 25 years old. You've been living, you know, like in a squat or something yeah, or with a much. bunch of cool, really, really cool kids in their early 20s. 20s and uh, then you you went to school and you kept it a secret out of embarrassment right so yeah i did i eventually um at age 25 i came home from my you know menial work one day and stopped at a drugstore and got a, um, a book of crossword puzzles and mm -hmm. sat there and our you know squat and did crossword puzzles and i was about like a halfway through it and i was like what am i doing this bourgeois thing well, no i've just never done a crossword what, well you know what's going on here and i realized i must have been bored <laughs> and then it was time to, to, get, to grow up but at this point i'd failed out of so many things that no one yeah i couldn't go to my parents and say will you please pay for me to go back to college this time i'm serious because look i finished these crossword look, puzzles I, well i half didn't actually finish <laughs> but got halfway through the crossword <laughs> and got some of the hard words so i decided that that no one that you know no one should believe that i could do anything until i proved it and so i secretly went to um uh to george washington which is the local school and was not quite as good then as it is now, and uh, and got on Dean's list before I decloaked. Wow! And and uh, before you decloaked, before you came out of the closet as a college student, before I came out as friends. a college student, <laughs> and you know, I mean, college, crossword puzzles have um, sociologists have said uh, can be a, a gateway drug to computational physics. And that is, in fact, what happened, right? It is. But again, that was not because I was necessarily – I could even spell computational physics. It's just that after after failing up, you're failing quite as badly as I had, yeah. you not only have to kind of go back to college, get good grades, but you need to do something really, really hard. Yeah. And it's like literally the two hardest words I could put together at the time was computational and physics. Yeah. And so I thought that would that would do it. And, and ultimately, I found out what it actually meant. And I did it. It was hard, but it was fun. But you – and you ended up getting – am I right? You went to Berkeley for a PhD? And uh, I did not get a PhD. I could. I, I think I can argue with some substance that I dropped out of a PhD program. Okay. To the extent that I went, I did post grad work, but yeah. I was never really in a yeah, PhD yeah. program. Well, you know, I mean, that's a pretty Elon dropped out of a PhD program. The Google a ABD, yeah. all the dissertation. Steve Jurvetson only lasted a few days. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that I think that dropping out of PhD programs is is the best because it shows that you're smart enough to get in, but yeah. wise enough not to complete. Precisely. So you were in Berkeley there, and um, that was was when the uh, superconducting super collider shut down as well, right? And exactly. that probably a lot of inter opportunities would have dried up. Yeah, all of them. All like, <laughs> that's a lot of. Well, them. basically everybody. So there's two terrible things happened when you were doing physics in the. I guess this would have been the late '80s. Um, number one is uh, the one that hit me in the face first, which was that um, China opened up for the first time and sent uh, the first class of students to U.S. universities, hmm. and you basically had these geniuses, you know, wow. the best, the smartest kids from China who'd been sort of you know Olympic style picked um were sent to the best schools and in this case it was it was uc berkeley and you know me and the other american kid were like the the last two in the class we just got crushed by how good they were so that was one bad thing now, the second bad thing is that all the job opportunities dr uh, dried up yeah because as you know the, the quest of physics or at least experimental physics is to get closer and closer to the big bang which means higher and higher energies which means bigger and bigger particle accelerators and like this energy of a particle accelerator scales or the, the cost scales with like the square of the energy and so you get to 18 you know 24 billion 32 billion and boom congress cuts it and that's it no jobs yeah 
So you got to go to Wall Street and invent, you know, computational finance, right. which turns you into a quant. And yes. we have we have the uh, you know subprime crisis to thank for that. Yeah, it would have been a lot less expensive uh, to complete the superconducting super collider as than it turns to out. Suffer the crash of two thousand and eight. <laughs> you do not want unemployed computational this, physicists. This is like the, after the Soviet after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, basically, unemployed physicists in general are dangerous. You need the equivalent of night basketball leagues for these guys. You just don't want them. Out on the street, Just digging up imaginary particles would be better. You would be so much safer. And so then you made um, the second surprising pivot of your your career uh, from punk rock to computational physics, certainly being the first one. But then you became a journalist. I mean, a science journalist. Accident. Accident. Um, yeah. You know, almost almost sort of the one. My parents were journalists, and the one thing I promised I would never do was. And so that's excellent what I ended up doing. So um, how very punk rock of you to go ahead and do it. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in a zig where you zigged. I'm, I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> well, he, so, so here's what happened. When physics cratered um, in terms of physics, you kind of had – you were left with what – you know, what else were you doing when you weren't doing physics? And it turns out we were doing the internet. That's what mm. the internet was designed to do is connect physics labs. It turns out that we were doing um, big data because that's the only big data around was physics data, supercomputers, you know, statistics. And it turns out that we were doing the web. The web was created at CERN, the yeah, physics lab. Of course. Yeah. And so we physicists may not have been able to do physics, but we could do the internet mm -hmm. and we could do big data and stats and, and all this stuff. And so that's why, um, you know, when I didn't want to go to Wall Street to be a uh, quant. And so I decided I was just going to, you know, this internet thing that we used was probably going to be big. Thank you, Wired Magazine, for revealing that. Okay. So you were reading, you were reading Wired, the first issues of Wired came out in 92. 93. 93. And 93. You, you were, you were reading and being influenced by those. Absolutely. At this point, I was, I was working for one of the journals, uh, Nature. Okay. So you started, you started at Nature. A absolutely. But that was still a kind of a safe place for scientists mm -hmm. and everyone was, a, was an academic of, of some sort. So it was a safe place for scientists and these are journals, but it wasn't really media, you know, traditional media. No, no. But then Wired comes out and Wired's like this internet thing, which at that time, you know, people were still calling the information superhighway right. or they, or the or ARPANET or something like that. This is going to change the world. It's social revolution, cultural revolution, end of the nation state. You remember, we, oh, we, yeah. we drank the same Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. I have a signed copy of the first issue of, of Wired from uh, Louis Rossetto and that was equally influential to me. I was getting an MBA, which was a very boring thing to do. Yeah. So imagine if you're kind of an you know, a, a, a nerd and you use this tool and, you know, it's like you know, a wrench of some sort and you're like, you know, it's, I'm, it's, 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 it's only a wrench, but it's my wrench. I'm pretty good at this wrench. And then somebody tells you this wrench is actually a magic wand that can change the world. That would be pretty cool. Mm. That's kind of what Wired did for the internet. But at that time, you were still fairly removed from the consumer press and magazines like Wired because you first spent several years writing for each of the two leading scientific journals, one of which, of course, is creatively titled Science, the other of which is called Nature. Science and nature, yeah. So it was very much in the science world. But then I decided this was bigger than science, that this internet thing was going to have application outside. And I was just going to follow that story. And think a lot of people from that era decided that, you know, especially from the, the science side of that era, kind of created the internet. So you commercialized, you went from ARPANET to, you know, the internet, you, the, you know, the dot com thing, the commercial use was allowed, the web was created, then it became cultural and content and all this yeah, yeah. music and, 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 and things like that. And so, and so, um, I decided that I was, that the internet was the biggest story of my day, of the mm -hmm. day, it might be my life, and that I was going to follow it. And so then I went to The Economist, um, which, you know, typically was hiring you know, scientists out of, out of the journals, but I, I convinced them to, um, to start the internet beat. 
And this was two, 93, so it's, it's, it's early days. 93? Yeah. Oh, that's very early. Mm. That's remarkable. Maybe it's 94. Yeah, yeah, but, it, but in that time frame. Yeah. So the, you covered the rise of the internet for The Economist. And then coming full circle, um, you became the editor-in-chief. It was editor-in-chief your first position at Wired? Mm-hmm. And that was 2001, am I right? Yeah. And then, so your tenure there was extremely long, longer than really the, the folks who'd founded it. 12 years, yeah. Yeah, absolutely 12 years. longer, yeah. Although not as, I mean, you know, we all worship at the, you know, at the, at, at the feet of, of Lewis and Jane. So I actually had dinner with Lewis last week and um, he continues to be a mentor. Oh yeah. So Somebody, we, I, at all Wired editors must, must go and pay and pil- do the pilgrimage. And pay homage. Yeah. Well, yeah, he, there is something special in any company about being the founder. There's no question. Even if the, 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 the later CEO comes along and, and shapes it in bigger ways than the founder. Well, but that- especially when there is a, not just a DNA, but a worldview you know, Lewis and Jane and Kevin and John had a particular worldview, which yeah. I think at the time was slandered as uh, anarcho-capitalist, anarchy plus capitalism. Um, but that oh, particular- anarcho, not narco. Uh, no, like anar- anarcho-capitalist, yeah. exactly. Uh, but that particular worldview was so so wired and so, you know, Lewis and Jane and, and Kevin to some extent, and so distinct, especially in a world of sort of homogenized media, yeah. that it, uh, you know, that it was, it was necessary to kind of refresh, you know, the, 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 so the, the, the founding Kool-Aid yeah. for all new editors. Well, it was, and it was so right. And there, those who denigrated it were so smug. I mean, the pitch of people who were saying, oh, this internet is nonsense and it's overhyped and it's so stupid in 1998, 99, I would challenge anybody to go back and look at anything that was in Wired in the late 90s that was predictive about the significance of all the things that were going on digitally and prove that they were just overhyped. They, yeah, anyway. So in the midst of all this, this is the pivot that in many ways fascinates me the most because you had been very, very much a thinker and a writer and a person who operated heavily in the realm of ideas. But of course, when you take over as editor-in-chief of an operation as large as Wired, you become intensely operational whether you want to or not. But it's a relatively rare editor-in-chief of any magazine of any scale that starts a raw startup. And you did that. Um, now you did it in a very, very unusual sequence of events that I'd love to go, go through. So, um, we are sitting in the offices of 3D Robotics, which, um, some might imagine is a 3D printing company or something, but it's a drone company. And the, the roots of it as a company and the roots of your fascination with drones definitely obviously extended your, your tenure at Wired. Tell us the Lego Mindstorm mm-hmm. story because I, I think it's kind of a, it's a great tale. The moral of this tale is that you can take the take the guy out of computational physics, but you can't take the computational physics out of the guy. Which is why crossword puzzles are so very dangerous. <laughs> yes, they lead to that weaponized puzzles. <laughs> so, I, so basically, this is a case of parenting gone horribly wrong. I've got I've got five kids. Um, you know, my wife and I we met at Nature. We're both you know technical, scientific, and the kids are sort of not. Mm. And, uh, you know, that that shall not stand. Mm. So we're constantly trying to inje- inspire them with nerdy projects. And it's just not working. Mm. Um, so I thought, you know, um, uh, so every weekend I would come home from Wired and, you know, there's these products would come in for review and you could take something home for review, you know, for, for sure. the weekend if you promised to review it. Or if you run the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> that would be abuse of power. All right. So uh, this one Friday, there was a uh, the new Lego Mindstorms NXT robotics kit had just come out. And then there was like a radio control airplane. And I thought Saturday we'll make a robot. Sunday we'll, we'll fly a plane. Something's going to stick. Yeah. 
So we we uh, we did that. I got the you know gather around kids. We're going to build a Lego you know robot. And the kids like Lego enough, and um, but it turns out that building a a robot of any sort is really boring um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it takes forever. Yeah. Second of all, when you're done, what you have is a is a plastic thing that rolls slowly towards a wall, mm. as opposed to transformers. Mm. Um, and so they couldn't believe how boring that was. Um, and then I'm like, okay, well, tomorrow we're going to fly a plane. So we watch videos of acrobatics and we go to the park and I fly it into a tree, as mm-hmm. you might imagine. Yeah. And uh, so they're like, predictably that sucked. Yep. And I said, no, actually predictably that did suck. How would that have sucked less? I thought, well, if we'd had a cooler robot and a better flying plane, yep. that would have sucked less. Maybe if the robot had flown the plane, maybe it was a flying robot that mm-hmm. would have sucked less. And I like literally Googled flying robot. Mm. And if you do this. Particularly in whatever year it was. Maybe even today, actually. Maybe in a day. If you Google flying robot, you will discover that a drone is a flying robot. Yep, yep. And then you say, okay, what's a drone? If you Google a drone, you'll find out that it's essentially a plane with a brain. Yep. It's, it's got an auto – it's got a, some sort of, you know, no, no human on board. There's a, some sort of machine. Um, if you find out what is this autopilot, um, it turns out that it's a combination of sensors and computers and, you know, magnetometers and accelerometers and gyros, et cetera, which is kind of more or less what was in the box. Yeah. The yep. Lego Mindstorms box. Yeah. So I'm like, kids, I've Googled four times. Um, <laughs> at the end of the Googling, it said something about software and hardware. So let's – here we have software and hardware in front of us. Let's let's make an autopilot mm. out of Lego. And they're like, all right. We did that and it kind of almost worked. And we stuck in a plane and it kind of almost worked. And we stuck, went to the field and, and it kind of almost worked. So it's a Mindstorm plane at this point. It's kind of, Basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a balsa wood plane with a Mindstorm stuck in the cockpit. That's cool. Um, and it controlled the surfaces and it had a little Bluetooth connection to a GPS device. And it, you know, it didn't sort of wasn't like fully autonomous, but it was semi-autonomous. And what year is this? 2007. Wow. That's early. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the kids thought that was, you know, mildly amusing for 10 minutes mm-hmm. and I was, my mind was blown. Wow. I was like, cause you know, cause, cause if you actually, if you continue Googling, you will discover that drones are military industrial technology, sure. they're export control, they're extremely classified, they're purely, you know, super, super high tech. And the fact that my kids and I had just made one out of Lego on the dining room table yeah. should not be possible. Yeah. So it wasn't so much that I was into drones. Mm. I just, I just, I just rarely have an experience where I accidentally, there's that word again, Mm-hmm. accidentally encounter, you know, the impossible. Mm-hmm. And just the fact, just the fact that I'd accidentally with my children created a fully a semi-autonomous drone and we've essentially weaponized Lego. Right, right. Made me sort of ask, how did that happen? What in the world has changed that mm-hmm. allows me to do this? So I set up a community to called DIY drones, uh, an online forum, basically. an online forum. Yep. Yeah. But it was, it was, yeah, it was blogs and it was a, it was a social network. Mm-hmm. Um, so earlier it would have been a blog. Maybe earlier it would have been a forum. This was now a social network. And it was largely to ask the question, what the heck is going on here? You know, what, 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 what combination of things of software and hardware and sensors and computing, et cetera, makes this interesting thing accessible to regular people. And so the breakthrough um, was just the notion that you could put the letters DIY mm. in front of a traditional industry, which, by the way, is the story of the personal computer. Yeah. It's the story of the internet. Anytime you can put the letters DIY or, or homebrew or, or homebrew or yeah. desktop or yeah. personal in front of some traditional industry, there's something bigger than technology at play. This is a social, a social moment. Yeah. DIY nukes, for instance. Huge community. No. <laughs> uh, thankfully not. But, you know, but, but um, d- you know, biology. Yeah. You know, could be. Yeah, certainly. Will be. No question. Will be. Yeah, and, bio. You know, yeah. and energy and things like that. 
um, and cars, which we'll get to in, 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 in a moment. Um, and so, you know, what happened is that year, that year 2007, just turned out to be the right year. It wasn't that I was particularly insightful. It's just that there was, it was a signal that had propagated into the ether. Mm. And anyone who was paying attention to like – well, as, a, as the editor of Wired, it was kind of like my job to pay attention. Yes. Um, but anyone who's paying attention had this – there was this like you know this, this like glitch in the matrix. And it's suddenly hardware, which had been sort of once cool back in the homebrew computing era in, in – in 70s. In the 77. Heathkit and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. got uncool for many, many years and then was suddenly cool again. And you can ask what was it. For me, it was Lego Mindstorms Brothers. It was 3D printing, the maker movement, make magazine, mm-hmm. maker fair. But, you know, the big one was the iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. That was the year the iPhone came out. And it turns out that at least for us, the guts of an iPhone, the chips, the sensors, the camera, the wireless, the batteries, all that kind of stuff was the super computer. Those components um, would be transformative to other industries. Those were all the things that were missing for a robust drone, and all of a sudden they were being manufactured in scale for this one thing in the tens, then hundreds of millions of units, so they're going to get cheap and ubiquitous. So just take those sensors, the the, the accelerometers, the gyros. Those used to be mechanical refrigerator-sized devices that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and were classified, and now it's a tiny chip in your pocket. Yep. So rather than than approaching a drone as a airplane minus a pilot, we approached it as a smartphone with propellers. Mm. And that was the philosophy of DIY drones, the community. You know, it wasn't obvious yeah, on, yeah. in the first day. That's what we were doing. But mm-hmm. a year or two in, we realized we were just surfing surfing the wave that the smartphone created. And what was going on in the community in those early days would be basically people essentially swapping recipes. So you swapping can build, recipes, yeah. yeah. yeah and so it was it hundreds, was, thousands of people. Well, initially it was, you know, it, was, it started with the thousands yeah. and the tens of thousands. But basically it was, it, was, um, it was a fascinating interdisciplinary moment where you had software and you had hardware. So some people were writing code and some people were spinning printed circuit boards. Mm. And, uh, and the recipe consisted of the following. Hey, welcome to DIY Drones. You want your own drone? Well, first... Fab this PCB, then solder on these components, then load your tool chain and compile this code, mm. then plug it into some janky radio control thing, and then good luck. Yeah. Which I thought was like, that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's spoon feeding. Um, but it, you know, it turns out that regular people are like, come on, can you just like make it for me? So, Ars Technical listeners, will Chris make drones for the common people? Or will he issue a regal refusal? Find out tomorrow when we'll post part two of this three-part conversation with Chris Anderson. Of course, if you can't wait to hear the rest of it, or if you'd just like to browse my three dozen plus other episodes, you can just head on over to my site at after-on.com or type the words after on into your favorite podcast app. Either way, you should then see my full archive of episodes in reverse chronological order, with Chris's interview appearing on October 3rd of last year. You'll also find unhurried conversations with world-class thinkers, founders, and scientists on subjects including life sciences, above all genomics and synthetic biology, also robotics, privacy and government hacking, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, astroarchaeology, and a whole lot more. Or you could just join me here on ours tomorrow for more with Chris Anderson.